often when you're in recovery from an eating disorder, I think it, it does something to kind of seduce you back in at various points. And I know for me, that's, that's definitely been something that's happened. It kind of, you romanticize those feelings that it gave you. You romanticize that kind of friendship feeling when actually deep down, you know that if you go back to those behaviors, it's not going to help anything. But in the short term, you're often looking for that quick fix. Welcome to the Hurt to Healing podcast with me, Pandora Morris. I've been fighting an uphill battle with my mental health for many years, and it's only now that I've started to see some glimmers of light. As part of my own recovery, I've made it my mission to support as many of you as possible on your own healing journey by sharing conversations that are more honest and more raw than ever before. I'll be speaking to some wonderful people from all walks of life who will open up about their own invisible struggles in the hope that it will provide a bit of solace and comfort for some of you. The Hurt to Healing podcast is proud to partner with Shout, the UK's first free, confidential, 24-7 tech support service. So if you're struggling to cope and need mental health support, please text SHOUT, S-H-O-U-T, to 85258. Today's guest is Hope Virgo, a multi-award winning mental health campaigner, an author and an international leading advocate for people with eating disorders. For four years, Hope managed to keep her own battle with anorexia a secret from her friends and family. But on the 17th of November 2007, her world changed forever and she was admitted to a mental health hospital. Hope then faced the biggest challenge of her life and had to dig deep to find the courage to beat her anorexia. Fast forward and Hope is thriving with the tools she's developed to maintain her recovery and she now supports many others in doing the same. She has become a vocal advocate against such factors as BMI in determining treatment and is the founder of the Dump the Scales campaign. She has now transformed her experience into a practical guide for eating disorder sufferers and is now the author of several books which look to the future through actionable advice. I greatly admire the way she reflects on her own personal battles and highlights the importance of coping mechanisms for strong mental health. I can only hope that this episode is helpful for those of you who might just need to hear this conversation today and will reinforce the fact that recovery is possible. How are you feeling today? I mean, what's your general mood? Uh, yeah, it's good. I'm quite tired. Um, but yeah, generally I'm doing okay. I feel like it's getting a little bit warmer, which is nice, which for me always massively helps my mood generally. Yeah, I think it's surprising how many people actually who suffer from kind of mental health related disorders are affected by the weather. Yeah. And yeah, and so what I'd love for you to talk to us about is... Um, Basically, in your book, you talk about seeing a therapist at quite a young age, sort of started, in, I think, from the age of nine. What initially caused your family to sort of think that you needed to see a therapist? Yeah, so growing up, um, I'd always struggled with processing my emotions and processing what was going on around me. And I think being one of five, again, often you kind of end up dismissing your feelings and not kind of putting yourself first or giving yourself that space to be really heard. And I think it was a combination of those two things, which for my mum kind of was a bit of a red flag that maybe something wasn't quite right, maybe something was going on for me, and maybe it'd be useful to have someone to talk to. See, I used to go every Thursday lunchtime and 
I'd see this therapist and we'd have like an hour session where we'd kind of sit and we'd do bits of artwork. Um, she'd often get me to write kind of bad habits on pieces of paper and put them into a tissue box, like this huge range of kind of activities to get me processing and thinking about things. But I think for me, because I didn't really fully understand why I had to have the therapy, I thought the whole thing was just really, really odd and I couldn't get my head around it at all. I just didn't really feel able to properly engage with what was going on, with what was really happening. So instead of giving myself that space to talk about things, I pretty much just gave the answers that I thought she wanted to hear on a kind of week to week basis um, and would often answer questions with how I thought my friends would answer as well. So it was kind of like this vicious cycle of just not really feeling like I was able to open up or not really wanting to open up either. Yeah. And so then how did things develop? Because I know that you suffered um, a sexual trauma that you speak about. And I mean, do you think that sort of ignited the eating disorder? What, what do you think that sort of yeah, led to? Okay, I guess firstly, I think for me, it was a, it was probably a combination of different factors. So I think kind of the way that I'd been brought up probably contributed slightly. There is some research to kind of show there's a genetic predisposition to these types of illnesses as well. So I think that obviously played a part too. But I think the abuse ended up, yeah, kind of being that final thing that caused me to really just start to kind of not really like who I was. I was often sitting with these emotions after it happened that it was my fault that it happened and the reason that it happened was because there was something the matter with me. And because I was constantly telling myself that narrative and sitting with all of these heightened emotions and uncertainty that I didn't want to feel, I had to find another way to cope with it. And for me, that came out in the food restriction, um, but also obsessive exercise. And it pretty much numbed everything that I didn't want to feel. It gave me a real sense of purpose. It distracted me from all those things I didn't ever want to feel. And it also just helped me to feel like maybe there wasn't something the matter with me. And maybe if I kept doing these behaviors that somehow everything would just work itself out. Mm. I know it's this idea, isn't it? That this sort of eating disorder becomes your friend. It's like this sort of little security blanket and it's every day it sort of wants you to do more and more and more because then you get that little kind of extra bit of satisfaction and I think particularly with the exercise it sort of becomes you know not only is it this huge endorphin release but it's also that sense of achievement you get from it yeah and you speak at length about you know this the idea of your eating disorder becoming your friend how long did that last you sort of believing that the eating disorder was this ally I think for a good kind of four or five years and I think it's as well, it's often when you're in recovery from an eating disorder, I think it, it does something to kind of seduce you back in at various points. And I know for me, that's, that's definitely been something that's happened. It kind of, you romanticize those feelings that it gave you, you romanticize that kind of friendship feeling when actually deep down, you know that if you go back to those behaviors, it's not gonna help anything. But in the short term, you're often looking for that quick fix. And you think by doing that behavior that your friend is telling you to do, that maybe everything will work itself out. And it ha does have this amazing numbing effect, doesn't it? I mean, it's, it's the best sort of tactic to just, yeah, go into that avoidance of feelings. Yeah. And I think, because what age are we talking, sort of going chronologically, you started the obsessive exercise around what sort of age? Uh, probably when I was about 12, 13. So around similar time to when the abuse happened. Yeah. And then I hid everything from everybody around me for the next four years. Um, and eventually got treatment when I was 17 years old. 
Yeah, which you speak. So then you went into hospital as an inpatient. Yeah, and you speak about having a sort of a bit of an epiphany when um, you were a nurse came in and you were made to trace the outline of your body. Why do you think that sort of flipped such a, a switch? Yeah, I think for me, I needed to have this concrete evidence that something wasn't quite right with me. And although I'd had kind of blood tests and heart rate scans and everything like that done, I still just wasn't able to accept that I needed to have that additional support. And I think for me, yeah, doing an activity like that where I was able to see so kind of openly the way that I viewed myself was so distorted, it gave me that evidence in that moment to just be like, actually, there must be something kind of seriously wrong with my brain in the way that I view myself. And maybe there was something the matter. And like I did have that moment then when I was in treatment where I was like, actually, something's not quite right. I need to give this a go. But I think over the next year when I was in hospital, it was still this kind of working progress. I think some people, you know, they talk about that kind of light bulb moment, don't they, where something just switches, where something kind of just changes. But for me, I think there was a lot of those light bulb moments along the way yeah. in order to keep me going and to keep me, yeah, I guess, pushing forward for that full recovery. So with your behaviours around food, I mean, before you went to hospital, were you just sort of describe what a typical day sort of looked like for you? So I guess from a mood perspective, I really struggled to kind of feel, yeah, happy a lot of the time. I was really tired. My hair was falling out a lot. I was constantly thinking about food and calories and exercise and wasn't really able to engage in proper activity. So I would sit there in my lessons at school and try and get involved, try and answer questions, but often would just be kind of thinking, yeah, about how I was going to get out of dinner that evening and completely like letting all of that thinking just really dominate my thoughts. Um, and I think quite often with eating disorders and something that we're not, we don't always kind of put two and two together is when someone's restricting, quite often that starvation part of our brain is there, quite often you are gonna be ruminating a lot more. You're gonna be much less rational about things. And I knew for me that actually looking back, I was constantly in that kind of state of rumination all hours of every day, going over things, going over conversations, like fixating on moments that had happened such a long time ago. And I think it's a funny one with eating disorders because at the time when you're living with one and it's kind of really heightened and you're doing what it's telling you to do maybe on a day-to-day -day basis, you think that you're really happy and you kind of convince yourself that if you keep doing this, that tomorrow everything will be fine, that everything's going to work itself out. But actually, when I look back, like I know I was just never that happy at all. And that's the really scary part about it is you remember the kind of numbing of emotion, which maybe we kind of all want to some extent or the distraction and things like that. But actually there's a lot of work that needs to be done to shift that mindset as well. And kind of, yeah, I think focusing on those negatives for me has always been a really crucial part of my own recovery. No, you're, you're so right because how doctors sort of treat you know, recovery and, and how they approach people with eating disorders can be very antiquated because a lot of it is just focused on weight gain. And like you said, that constant rumination about food, I don't think that anyone who hasn't had an eating disorder can quite uh, sort of understand or even kind of comprehend the degree to which one's thoughts can be so preoccupied by other things. It's almost like I try and describe to friends as it being like having a sort of full-time job, having, managing a sort of second brain, because it does, it wears away while you're trying to concentrate on other things. Yeah. 
so how did you cope at school? I mean, were, were exams, could you focus on schoolwork or was that a challenge? Uh, yeah, it, it was a challenge, but I did, I did. I guess I did the best I could in that time. And I think that's the other thing with eating disorders is we both know they're so that you're, you're so driven and you're such a perfectionist a lot of the time that you want to do the best of the best of the best. And so I did my absolute best to not let it dominate my kind of exam revision and things like that. But I definitely, I guess I lost a lot of my enjoyment of my studies and I probably pushed myself too much as a bit of a coping mechanism in that sense as well. And found revising and things like that just really hard work because of being distracted a lot of the time, kind of weighing up whether I wanted to be out exercising, whether I could be revising, like all of that kind of constant dialogue going in your head, which again, I think unless you've had an eating disorder, it's it's really hard to understand where you're at with that. And I think a lot of that then again, probably fuels a lot of the misunderstanding and stigma around it. I think also, although I'm only 31, like back when I was growing up, people didn't really talk about eating disorders like they do nowadays. And so I think in that sense, none of my friends really had any idea of what was going on. And that didn't bother me. But I think again, like nowadays, if you have a friend who's struggling, you might be slightly more aware of actually, oh, something isn't quite right or something is going on for them. So maybe it kind of, yeah, you'd bring the conversation a little bit more out into the open perhaps nowadays than we used to do back when I was growing up. Absolutely. I mean, I think this is a key area that needs to also be addressed is that peer support. I do think that there needs to be more education um, in schools about how friends can actually help someone with an eating disorder and how, you know, and also, you know, support offered to parents because I know you've spoken about it and, and you know, I've also spoken about how it's very hard dealing with it in a family dynamic because people get very angry with you and very frustrated Mm -hmm. and then you sort of retreat into the eating disorder even more because you feel like it's you know they're just targeting you and you're being attacked yeah how did it have an effect on your family life sort of at age 17 16 17 so when i was at school uh, I did was in, obviously in all the sports teams, things like that, which was really fun. Um, and I did tend to really enjoy that sort of stuff, actually. But gradually, it must have been when I'd started sixth form and my school had kind of got in touch with my mum about kind of their worries and concerns about me. And the school slowly started to kind of pick up a lot more on this and actually stop me doing activity and stop me getting involved in things, which at the time I found really, really frustrating. And kind of felt like everybody was against me all the time and but I think for me then looking back it obviously was it was a really important factor that I got to where actually I didn't exercise for my whole hospital admission apart from my final two months and it helped me to then kind of get to a space where I understood a lot more about my body and about kind of healthy lifestyle and things like that which again I think often in treatment and often when someone's in recovery from an eating disorder we forget all of that additional stuff and additional complications that often are wrapped up within the eating disorder as well. Mm, I so agree with you. I mean, I get so frustrated by all these magazine articles, journalists are just talking about more exercise, move more. We're turning into a nation of sloths. You know, you've got everyone's got to get up, get active, get their 150 minutes a week. There's definitely a message that needs to change because it's this sort of whole like, oh, it's good to push yourself and it's good to be, you know, a a sort of ultra endurance athlete and do Ironman when in fact, is that normal? Is that what we're actually supposed to be doing to ourselves? 
Yeah, no, I agree. And I think, again, one of my kind of interests is people that we can't always see as well. So those people who maybe have got an eating disorder but are hidden completely in plain sight and who maybe are obsessively exercising or binge eating or restricting or have bulimic tendencies, whatever it might be. And actually in those situations, again, for those people, it's even harder, isn't it, to get any sort of support. And also coming across those people who perhaps maybe started to kind of lose weight or maybe started to exercise more and and then get praised for that. I actually had a story recently of um, someone who uh, went to their GP, kind of worried about their food intake, kind of worried about whether they were developing an eating disorder. The GP told them that uh, they should be happy with how much exercise they're doing and to kind of keep eating the way they were eating. And, and arguably this person probably had something like orthorexia, but because of that lack of understanding, because of the way society is, we just normalize what they were doing. Hurt to Healing has partnered with Brown Advisory to bring you this podcast. Brown Advisory, a global investment management firm, is passionate about raising awareness of mental health challenges in order to help people thrive in an ever-changing world. A big thank you to Brown Advisory for supporting my mission. You spoke about how you've now actually managed to turn exercise into something that you see as a, as a positive and you do it for your body. You know, it's about actually wellness and your mental well-being. And I'd love to know more about how you've managed to do that because I think that's a huge, huge shift and I really commend you for it because it must have been so difficult. I think for me, it was understanding what purpose those kind of any eating disorder behaviours serve, whether that's exercise, whether that's counting, whether that's restriction, anything. Yeah, for me, all of those behaviours were always about numbing emotion. They're about making me feel like I had some sort of self-worth. And also... I think within that there was obviously a lot of fear as well if i had stuff or didn't do behaviors that i thought i should be doing compensatory behaviors as well kind of included within that then i'd had this fear that maybe i'd kind of change my weight that men people wouldn't understand people wouldn't like me so it was kind of wrapped up in there was just yeah so much stuff going on and for me i had to get to a space where i understood that and was able to start to really really unpack it and unpack it to the extent that actually if I was triggered by something, then even if I'd have that kind of want to go and do a behavior, actually, I could then be like, actually, no, that's, yes, that will give me some short-term release, but actually in the long term, it's not gonna help me at all. And I think often with things like exercise and with kind of introducing fear foods, anything like that, it's really, really difficult to do. And there is so much fear. There's so much, again, so much uncertainty within that. But actually, I think for me, it was getting to a space where I was like, actually, I don't really want to do this, but I really want to have a life that's completely away from this. And I I talk a lot about how I, I believe that people do make full recoveries. And I think one way of making the full recovery is to learn to sit with that uncertainty, to learn to kind of unpack the fear around kind of the exercise or the fear foods anything like that and the more we sit with that and the more we do that and go against those behaviors that maybe our brain's telling us to do the easier it then gets in the long term so definitely for me it was yeah learning understanding the eating disorder and the behaviors learning to then sit with the kind of uncertainty and fear in those moments when i was triggered by something having a distraction in place so that i didn't then go and do that behavior and then also making my motivations such like a big part of my life so knowing that 
if I, I wanted to do X, Y, Z with my life, and if I wanted to do that, I couldn't actually keep doing these behaviors. And again, for me, like just focusing on that a lot of the time really, really helped, but, but it has been really challenging. And I think I've been in recovery now for, I don't know, 14, 15 years, um, which is such a long time. Um, and it's had moments through that time where it's felt really challenging, where it's felt really difficult, moments where it's felt really easy. And I think that's the thing, it's, it's with recovery, it's, it's a marathon, it's not a sprint. This stuff doesn't just click overnight for most people. And a lot of it is, like I said, kind of sitting with that fear. And, and I think for some people as well, particularly with exercise, for me at the start of my recovery, it was actually don't exercise at all. And then learn to kind of integrate it back in. And I think particularly with things like exercise, you can have people around you that you're accountable to. Um, you can book meetings at, I don't know, certain times throughout the day when you think you might be triggered to go and exercise a little bit more, knowing that yes, you might feel uncomfortable cutting a session shorter, but actually if you do it once and you do it again and again and again, it gets easier and it becomes much less dominating on your life. And I think then when you do that, you then start to see all the positives of kind of sitting with that kind of fear and uncertainty. I know. I mean, that's just, uh, yeah, again, a great point about, you know, that that's why recovery from an eating disorder is so, so challenging because you have to sh sit in the shit. And I, I wonder how, how did you incentivize yourself to sit with that, basically sit in the kind of shitty zone, as it were? Yeah, so I, I journal an awful lot. And for me, kind of getting all of my feelings and emotions down onto paper really helps in kind of allowing myself to also feel those things. Even the last couple of weeks when emotions have got really, really heightened, kind of giving myself that space to feel upset or down about stuff and not kind of beating myself up for that. Again, it's been a really, really big step forward for me. I think also checking in with myself and kind of working out what sort of future I want to have. Do I want to have a future which is completely dictated by kind of calories and exercise? Or do I want to have a future where actually it's totally free from all of this? And reminding myself of that when I may be tempted to go and do behaviours always, again, kind of helps as well. And then I think as individuals, you have to find your own distractions, actually. So when whether you're triggered by something, whether you just want to go and do a behaviour, whatever it might be, actually having those distractions in place and finding a way to yeah kind of sit with that and for me the distractions tend to be maybe listening to music watching tv i go to church so kind of spending time doing quiet times things like that always really help me um, and then i think the other thing which has been crucial um is is communication so a lot of people with eating disorders really struggle with that communication factor and getting to a space where we are able to communicate, knowing that we can't necessarily fix what's going on, but actually just by saying things like, I feel this, or I'm struggling with this, or this is what's going on, I think again, helps us to kind of reshape actually maybe what we're going through and helps us to feel less tempted to go and do that behavior as that kind of short-term release. And then the other thing that, um you speak about is a, sort of that idea of, you know, do we tell people, you know, when you have a meal with friends, do you forewarn them? I'm at the stage where I find it a real challenge eating at people's houses because if I don't know what they're cooking and it might be a fear food, I feel that I'm just going to uh, go into panic mode and I won't be present and my head's just going to spiral. So 
my way of doing it is I sort of say to them, look, I'm really sorry, but you know, I, I've still got a few issues around food. Could you let me know what you're cooking tonight? And if it's too much for me or whatever, I'll, I'm very happy to bring my own thing. Did you do that or did you sort of just sit with it and just kind of, you know, white knuckle it as it were? Um, how did you navigate that sort of sea of socializing around food? So I guess at first, so I was still at school. I was I, well, so my final year at school when I went into hospital and I was allowed out kind of towards the end of my admission um, to see friends and do kind of yeah activities and things like that. Um, my way of dealing with that and having the food involved was I would have done practice meals beforehand um, in certain restaurants. So I knew that there were certain restaurants that I was fine to go to. And because my friends knew what was going on, that was always really, really respected. I went straight to university um, after hospital and at that point decided not to tell anyone what was going on. I think I was so embarrassed about the fact that I'd spent a year in a hospital and I just I just wanted to kind of just be away from the whole thing. And because of that level of secrecy, it meant that I couldn't dictate what was going and what I needed and what would be helpful. And um, I mean, it was interesting because my friends were very aware that there was something that was a bit kind of not quite right in certain situations. And and I found it really challenging in certain places. Um, but at that point, it was kind of just what I needed to do to keep going. And then I think since then, I've had moments when I felt like I was in a really good space and I wouldn't need to have those conversations with friends beforehand. But I've also had moments when things have felt slightly harder and I've wanted to know. And for me, it's about, yeah, I guess when I need to know, I will always ask and I will kind of speak up and say what works for me and what doesn't work for me. Um, but also I'm really, really aware that sometimes I need to go into these environments and trust the people that I'm with and trust that actually they're probably going to make something that's really, really nice and it's probably going to be okay. And if I want to be fully well, I have to learn again to sit with that. I think the other thing that's important is to realize that different groups of people, you'll probably want to have those different parameters depending on who you're with. So for example, with my other half, I would be fine with him probably picking a restaurant last minute if that was kind of what we were thinking about or even maybe with my mum or someone like that because I know that they would choose something that would work for me. But I think when we're going into environments that maybe don't feel quite safe or with people that we don't think understand, then it adds another complicated layer to it. So I think in that respect, it's, yeah, it is about working out what works for you. And also, I think particularly at the moment with the calorie legislation and things like that, just picking the places that work for you, but also being bold enough to be like, actually, I don't want to see the calories on the menu and kind of owning that in some respects as well. Yeah, what's going on with your campaigning around that? Yeah, no, so um, I wrote an open letter to the Secretary of State and to the Prime Minister um, and then met with uh, Number 10 last week to talk to them a little bit more about it. Um, so at the moment, I'm calling for an immediate scrapping of the calories on children's menus. Again, whilst we know that that have a, is going to have a detrimental impact on adult menus, again, for children, I think that's probably an easier an easier ask to make, particularly, yeah, with kind of the government as well. Um, and then also getting the government to actually look at the science behind it and to spend some time looking at the research around calorie labelling and how inaccurate it is and doing an educational perspective from that side of things. So 
it feels like a quite frustrating battle to be fighting at the moment, um, if I'm honest, but I think obviously we're making, yeah, hopefully making some sort of progress with it. I think, again, it's this whole thing of, you know, one calorie and an avocado doesn't equal a calorie in a piece of toast. You know, it's it's just ridiculous. And often the most calorie-dense foods are actually the incredibly healthy ones. And if we knew how many calories were in a sort of, you know, handful of nuts, we'd probably be horrified and never touch them again. And yet we know that they're an incredibly healthy food and great for our hair and our skin and all sorts of other functions in the body. So, no, I mean, I think it's, it's a really, really interesting sort of, yeah, thing to pursue and good on good on you for doing it. And then will you talk about your um your campaign around ditching the scales? Yeah, so I launched it a couple of years ago now. Um and originally was around kind of scrapping BMI when it came to diagnosis of an eating disorder. So we know that eating disorders present in all different body sizes. Um, but also statistically only six percent of people with an eating disorder will ever fall into the underweight category so we're kind of missing this entire cohort of people who are just not going to be able to access treatment or support and so yeah the campaign is all around getting rid of the bmi factor but also looking at education so kind of educating all front care work kind of health workers on eating disorders um making sure they have the right understanding, they have the right words to say to people when maybe someone presents with an eating disorder. And then also looking at issues around funding, around workforce. Uh, and again, particularly with the pandemic, we know that services are now kind of even more overstretched than ever. And whilst this was an issue before the pandemic, it's definitely something that's getting kind of a lot worse at the moment. And so currently really pushing for this immediate kind of injection of funding to kind of try and get the support people that need it at the moment and then looking actually what can we do kind of further afield further down the line to challenge this a little bit more and relationships because i think that's something that i've certainly found incredibly hard to navigate because obviously your eating disorder becomes yeah your best friend your boyfriend your whatever you want to call it um it takes up all your time and all your thought space so what eventually enabled you to start you know letting other people in and actually forming a bond which was intimate because obviously it it's you know intimate in a physical sense which is can be a real challenge um and also just in an emotional sense letting someone else come into your life yeah and i I think it was really really hard and i think everyone yeah everyone needs to work out what speed they want to go at with it which is challenging. I think the first thing is for me, it wasn't about telling everybody what I'd been through when I maybe met people or when I dated people, things like that, but actually giving myself that space to kind of start to like unpack it with them if I felt like I was kind of trusting them and again, kind of giving them that space to then ask any questions they wanted to ask about it as well. I think so often with eating disorders, people are so nervous about triggering someone or upsetting someone that we just shy away from the conversation. And again, because people don't always fully understand them, again, it stops people kind of, yeah, wanting to kind of reach out and have that conversation. So yeah, I guess for me it was, yeah, kind of identifying who I wanted to tell and when I was ready to tell them, and then trying to work out actually what would be useful for, for them to know. So again, not telling them everything, but actually starting to kind of, yeah, share little bits and pieces um, as well was gonna be useful. Um, And then I think working out how they can support you. So I know for me in the past, like maybe people have helped with setting boundaries, kind of anything like that. 
but actually again having that distraction kind of working out how a meal might look anything like that and just i think if we go to people with those key actually this is how you can support me in that moment it it can be really useful for them because all they want to do is support and help as well and i think the other thing as well when you are kind of getting to that space is i guess reminding yourself that potentially the eating disorder will use it as a time to try and pull you back in to try and kind of kick up a bit of a fuss that maybe you're being friends with other people maybe you're starting to date other people and you have to get to a space where you're able to kind of predict that your brain will respond like that and so you can kind of respond with your much more kind of well voice and again respond in a way that works well hope it's been so just inspiring talking to you and um i just i think what you're doing is just yeah phenomenal no, thank you so much for speaking to me. Yeah, it's been really, really good. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hurt to Healing podcast. I'd love for you to subscribe to the show or to follow me on our Hurt to Healing Instagram at Hurt to Healing Pod. You might also have a friend or family member that you think might benefit from hearing this conversation. So please spread the word. Mm-hmm.